0: Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I just wanted to say this at the beginning, we don't always remember to, but and if you don't have a Bible either with you this morning or you don't have a Bible, either way, we would love for you to have one, either to use this morning or to take with you if you don't have one. Um, I believe that our ushers uh, have some of it. Is there an usher in here who might confirm that? Lindsay, do you know, do we have some Bibles? around. If anyone needs one, oh yeah, there's Carrie, just throw your hand up real fast and we'd love to, to get you a copy because we're going to open it together today, um, sit under it, teach from it, uh, and we'd love for everyone to be able to see what we're, uh, we're reading uh, so you can see whether these things are true, whether I'm just making these things up, or it's actually right here in God's Word. So, uh, anyone need a Bible? Nope. All right, we're good. Uh, today's a special day for our family it's my son Levi's birthday he's seven years old and uh, if you don't know uh, our son became our son through adoption he was born in China uh, and so when he was seventeen months old uh, was our gotcha day we, we got him as a little 17 month old he was all it, w- it was cold weather when we were there and he was all bundled up in these like layers and layers and layers like a snowman and 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 uh, just recently was watching the, the video again of, of the day that we got him and but uh, from the day we got him, he's just been the most sweet, sensitive, affectionate, sort of tender hearted. He's kind of a teddy bear kind of a personality, uh, uh loves people. He's warm. He's our snuggler. Our daughter, Lily Mae is more of the cat kind of personality. She can be warm, but she on her own, you know, she's very independent and sort of on her own schedule, but Levi is just a unabashed, you know, hugger. And in fact, two weeks ago, uh, Tom and Kimber were standing over here after church with Carrie Stockton, who was singing this morning, and they were having a conversation, and Levi came up in between the services I heard and just walked up and said, so, what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just, or, uh, I think that's the way he said. Anyway, he, he inserted himself right in the conversation. Carrie said later, she said, oh, it was a great reminder that hospitality is not that hard, you know, to be welcoming. Just go up to someone and say, so, what are we talking about? <laughs> but he has no no qualms about that sort of thing. He's just warm. You know affectionate, tender kid, love this kid, uh, funny too, he makes us laugh all the time. in fact, we went to the San Diego Zoo on Wednesday for the day, and uh, uh at the end of the day, we went to the gift shop and uh Said you can pick out one of the, like, the smallest stuffed animals, you know. Uh, and, and there's like every animal possible at the San Diego Zoo that you can buy in stuffed form. And of all the things, he picked a caribou that's laying down. I mean, it's not very cuddly, but he's all into antlered things lately. It's like his favorite a- animal. So he picked this caribou, and on the way home, halfway home, he announced that he had named it Volkswagen <laughs> the caribou. So, anyway, he loves vehicles, he loves antlered beasts. And uh, Volkswagen the Caribou is our most recent, but anyway, why am I saying that? So Levi, um, he's seven now, and uh, he's at a stage that I think, I think it's safe to say he has mixed feelings about authority in his life, right? So two weeks ago at our church picnic, um, maybe some of you were there, both campuses together at Clark Park, this huge crowd. Uh, throughout the course of the picnic. Both saw uh, Levi's strong resistance to authority, but also that he really likes and wants authority. So we get there, and it's crowded, and kids are running around. Junior hires are soaking each other with water bottles, and he just wants to dive in. And first we sit him down. We're like, listen, here's the boundaries, right? That group over there is not us. That group way over there is not us. Don't go further than this sidewalk. You know, kind of stay in sight. But then Betsy and I are catching up with people from La Mirada that we haven't seen for a long time. And we're each trying to keep our eye on him. And about half a dozen times I had to like, go way out and, and pull him back and say, buddy, look at look in my eyes right here. This is the boundary. And as I'm doing that, laying out the boundaries again, he's just so impatient with me. He just wants to get back to what's going on. He's going, ugh, fine. Right? So he can get back to the, to the play. And then he dives back in and he was following these junior hires around, filling up empty water bottles and then dousing each other, and all of a sudden I look up at one point, I'm talking, right as he is dousing Robert Brown, one of our trustees, who's in mid-conversation with somebody, not playing the game at all, Levi's just like, you know, all over him, and Robert... Is the perfect kind of guy to, to take that and smile. But I had to pull him aside. I'm like, buddy, everybody's not in this game right now. You can't just douse anybody. That's not the, you know, how, how the rules work. And I'm just trying to get that rule into his head. And he's looking around me like, like ah, fine. OK, just you know, let me go. And so the whole picnic is kind of this balance between you know, the boundaries and keeping them within them. Well then the picnic is almost over and we parenting failed. We both were absorbed talking and different conversations and we check in, okay, have you seen Levi? No, I've seen Levi. I start looking around. I don't see his red shirt. You know, long story short, he had grabbed another kid's scooter and started scootering. And the next thing he knew, he found himself all the way at the front of the Clark Park by the entrance and looked up and realized he didn't know anybody and didn't know where we were and panicked and found the Ranger. And so I'm about halfway around the lake looking for him, and the Ranger golf cart's coming around, and he's scootering beside with these really big eyes. And as soon as he saw me, he just dropped the scooter and ran over and just hugged me. I mean, shaking, crying. A couple of minutes, I mean, he was scared, right? I mean, it was you know that feeling when you're a kid and you all of a sudden look up and you're like, I don't, I don't know anybody. I was thinking about you know, the, the, the mix of emotions right even at that picnic. On one hand, when I'm coming in with the boundaries and the authority and the guidance and the, and the correction, there can be this resistance to it. Ah, oh, fine. You know, Let me just get about my thing. But at the same time, he wants there to be an authority, right, who knows what's safe what the boundaries are, not just physically, but even in life for his safety, right? And, and there's moments when he realizes, oh, I'm thankful that there is an authority over me who's watching out for me and has good intentions with boundaries and things like that. He has mixed feelings, right? So I was thinking about this, this passage is about authority. And, and we have mixed feelings about authority, on all sorts of you know, smaller levels, all authorities in our life, we can both resist certain authority, but also be grateful for it. But especially with God, right? We, we all know both sides of this, that, that there's something in us from, from our very core that resists God's authority. God has the authority to tell us what to do and tell us what is right and what is wrong. And he also has the authority to bring consequences and be a judge, right? And hold us accountable to his boundaries and his authority in in his teaching, right? And his guiding, right? He has has a a judge sort of authority. And we have mixed feelings about these, right? We don't like being told what to do. We don't like when God draws boundaries that we want to cross, that our hearts desire, right? And we, we resist and we rebel, right? But at the same time, there's times where we're thankful for God's boundaries and we can recognize sort of theoretically the goodness in it. Even this week for me, just yesterday, uh, circumstances that make me aware of both mixed feelings. Of So God, in his authority, Jesus says to us, um, uh, how, much time, how much should I forgive? He says, 70 times 7. I want you to forgive when you're sinned against by your brother in a way that reflects my persevering steadfast forgiveness. I want you to forgive 70 times seven. And I can look at that sort of authoritative command of Jesus and say, oh, I'm so thankful for that, theoretically, right? Oh, isn't that beautiful? Just keep forgiving, keep forgiving. I'm really thankful for it and glad for it if you forgive me like that. But all of a sudden, circumstances this week where I don't want to forgive like that, And there's a resistance in my heart to go, oh, you mean me now with this circumstance? And I feel that resistance in my heart, right? Jesus says things like, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're liable to judgment, right? And so the anger and bitterness held in my heart, God says authoritatively, that is sin. And it's deserving of judgment. And that's great news for me. Related to other people's anger and me being, you know, affected by that. But when it comes to bear and he's calling out my anger in my heart, there's a resistance there, right? I don't want to excuse it. I want to explain it away and give it, well, you know, and, and, I'm, and back even this week, I feel that resistance. And yet at the same time, I am thankful. We are thankful. We want to, we want to know, don't we? At the end of the day, there's someone who knows the truth, who's trustworthy, who can guide us in righteousness and in right living and in ways that we were made to function and flourish, right? We want an authority that's like that, right? We, we can resist submitting ourselves to him, but there's something in us that wants that, I think. And I think there's something in us too that wants an authority, even though that makes God judge, but it also makes him protector, right? If he's, his authority is greater than any other enemy and he can overcome my greatest enemies, then that's good news, isn't it? So I can not want God's authority to be judge over me, but I do want a God who is judge and who judges evil and will bring evil to justice, right? We're conflicted about this. Well, Mark doesn't waste any time in our gospel showing us that Jesus has authority, He has teaching authority. He speaks with divine authority. He speaks as one who has authority, we're going to see. But secondly, that Jesus himself has an authority and that he demonstrates, he shows his authority. He has power over his enemies, all of them. He has power over our enemies, all of them. And he gets right at this in Mark 1, uh, verse 21 through 28, this first real uh, scene we have of his ministry beginning in Mark. So let me read the passage, and, and then we'll move on. Mark 1, 21. And they, Jesus and who? Who's the they at this point? The first disciples, right? So he's just begun calling some people like uh, Simon and Andrew uh, and James and John. Come follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He, they went into Capernaum. And it says what they're doing uh, is they're there, he's there to teach. Look back in verse 14. Mark showed us what is Jesus' primary ministry objective because we're going to see scenes in the gospel where along the way he interacts with people and he heals and he encounters situations that he responds to. But Jesus' focus, his mission right now is this, verse 14, he comes into Galilee, this whole region, with the intention to proclaim the gospel of God. And that gospel at this point is, time's up, the kingdom is here, it's at hand right now, so repent and believe in this good news that I'm bringing, right? So he comes, proclaiming the gospel. And I love that in verse 17, as he starts calling disciples, he uses this metaphor. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's helpful to me to say, okay, so what is the goal of proclaiming the gospel of God? Well, it's to fish for men. Sounds funny. It's to draw people into this kingdom. He comes proclaiming a kingdom. And he says, Come with me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we're going to fish for men by proclaiming this good news and inviting people to respond to it in repentance and faith and, and yield it, submission, receiving me, the one who's bringing it. So, verse 21 they enter into Capernaum, one of the villages in Galilee, this fishing village. They're there to fish for men. And it says, They went into the Sabbath or sorry, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Synagogues were not just mini little temple outlets, right? There was one temple that was in Jerusalem, and it was unique. Sacrifices were made for sin there, and people would travel there uh, at regular times in the year to offer those sacrifices um, to atone for their sins. And there were festivals that God had said, At times, I want you to gather there and celebrate those there. But synagogues were these little centers. In any village that had more than 10 Jewish men, 13 or up, they would establish a synagogue. And the primary purpose was teaching the scriptures, making sure that people didn't forget. Uh, and, and lose uh, their grip on understanding the Old Testament scriptures. They were, they were places of teaching. And so on the Sabbath, the, the, the habit was that some scripture would be read, Oftentimes, the synagogue ruler would select a scripture and have it read. But then the synagogue ruler wasn't really the pastor as much as the facilitator or administrator. And the teaching would happen by experts in the law, sometimes scribes or sometimes teachers who traveled and taught from town to town, who knew God's word and and could explain it. And so it was customary. This isn't normal for us, right? We wouldn't have someone in here. I wouldn't at this point say, all right, we read the passage. Um, All right, anyone like to speak about it? No, we wouldn't do that, right? But this was the custom here. Did I read the passage? No. Oh, man. So I preached last week at La Mirada, and then here's the fifth time through. And, and Okay, let's actually read this passage here before we dive back in. Is that all right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, Mark 1, 21. I must have, like, zoned out for a second. All right, I could have sworn we read it. Here we go. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath and the custom is scriptures would be read and if there was a teacher present or they would look to them and say, would you have a word? Would you want to stand up and explain or, or comment on or, in, or give an interpretation of what this means? And that's what they've done for Jesus. Um, Jesus entered the synagogue, but Mark doesn't tell us what was read. Here. that doesn't seem to be his focus is on specifically what Scripture Jesus explained. I think because John, uh, Mark wants us to understand that generally speaking, what Jesus was preaching was in verse fifteen we 've already seen the kingdom is here, the time has been fulfilled now god 's kingdom is bursting on the scene. so repent and believe the good news, right? Receive this kingdom. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching and proclaiming this gospel. And notice what their response is. Verse 22 says they were astonished. They were astonished. It's a word that just means they were struck, right? What His teaching hit them with force. I mean, it got their attention. And what he says got their attention here, at least, wasn't so much what he said as to how he said it. Look at it. It says he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So as means manner, right? It's true, we see Jesus teach and say things that were different or clarifying or correcting wrong things that had been taught throughout the Gospel. But right here what Mark says astonishes them is the way he speaks. He speaks as one who has authority and not as the scribes. So a good question is, okay, how do the scribes teach? What, what were they used to? What were the people used to hearing that this was a, wait, I'm not used to this. A great little book I would recommend is called Putting Jesus in His Place. It was written this, this last year by a guy, Robert Bowman, um, who was... Uh, it's on the deity of Christ. And he recognizes we live, I think, in an age where, especially in America, where lots of people love thinking about Jesus as this really nice guy who didn't claim to be God, but we put that on him later, right? And so the book is about saying, no, 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 look at the Gospels. Jesus undeniably intended to communicate that I'm God, right? So it's a great little book to go along with the Gospel of Mark, putting Jesus in his place. But in it, I I came across this paragraph. He said, this is what scribes and rabbis normally taught like. He said, can you put that up, Molly? Rabbis interpreted the scriptures within a stream of oral tradition and rabbinical reflection that had been going on for centuries, right? One of the principal functions of scribes then was to uh, write down and study and codify all these often disparate, or contrasting opinions, right, to be a, a, a scholar in all of what has come before and all of this kind of collective interpretation, careful consensus interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, right, that had been supplemented by each new generation. So the body of sort of authoritative resource was, was growing and they would point to that. And he says this, rabbis based their teacher, teaching on this oral tradition to such an extent that offering interpretation of the Torah without citing past rabbis or scribes was something of an outrage. So apparently what was customary was to point outside of yourself for where the authority lies, right? It's not with me. I'm not just telling you this, but this is what has been said, and Rabbi so-and-so, and and Rabbi so-and-so put it like this, and and they agree, right? And sort of um, uh, sitting it on the foundation of all this oral tradition being taught. So that's what the people are used to is the scribes not teaching as though they have authority, but pointing outside of themselves. And Mark says that they note that Jesus teaches as one who had authority. Authority. I want us to see a couple of examples of, I think, the sort of thing that they heard that made them realize Jesus talks differently. Look back at Matthew 5. Not just what he said, but how he said it. In Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, we call it, in verse 20, he's going to launch into um, some clarifying of how, over time, the scribes and the Pharisees had taught god 's law in such a way that it reduced it and minimized it and and sort of uh, shrunk it down to a more manageable size that Jesus said fell far short of the righteous standard of God, right They had sort of uh, made it easier or or uh, minimized it right simplified it, overly simplified it. And here's how, notice how Jesus teaches, verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what they have been teaching, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then look how he says it. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, this is the party line, right? You shall not murder. If you murder, you're liable to judgment. But I say to you, you've heard all of them say, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, right? Hatred in the heart is just as deserving of hell as murder with a knife. And on what authority? I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he does it again and again. He does it with adultery and divorce, the way that they were looking at it and taking oaths and and, uh, vengeance. And again, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I say to you. All of what they have said, he's he's willing to say, you know, contrary, I say to you and give a clarification or a reinterpretation of law that had been obscured uh, or diminished In fact, the Old Testament prophets didn't talk like this, right? Think about if you've read through the prophets in the Old Testament. When they come either uh, speaking to cities or speaking to kings on behalf of God, how do they usually begin? Yeah, thus says the Lord, right? They make it really clear up front. Listen, I, I know I've just got a guy with a big beard or you know whatever that hasn't taken a bath. Some of those prophets you know, had to go through some rough stuff. But thus says the Lord, God has given me a message for you. Or sometimes it'll say the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and he said, right? And here's Jesus just saying, right? He's just saying, I say to you, I say to you again and again. In fact, he has this weird habit that we've probably gotten used to if you've read the Gospels, um, with any frequency, is Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, right? Truly, truly, or amen, amen, literally, I say to you. Have you ever stopped and thought, that's weird to say amen at the beginning of what you say? Amen is something that you usually say after something, usually after something someone else says, right? Someone says something that's true, it's trustworthy, and it's, it's worth agreeing with, right? So they say it, and when you say amen, what are you saying? I agree, that's true, so be it, right? You're adding an affirmation to something. It's a recognition of truth and trustworthiness of a statement. And Jesus has this unique pattern of beginning everything he's teaching with double, amen, amen, I say to you. He doesn't, he, he doesn't qualify it or he doesn't wait around for someone to amen it. He just amens it and then says it. And again, this guy, Robert Bowman, I, this sentence, he said, Jesus' habit of doing this was not common. He said this habit of beginning your sentences with the word amen had no precedent in the Old Testament, nor have scholars found any precedent in the rest of ancient Jewish literature. No one talked like this. And here comes Jesus teaching in synagogues and just saying, I say to you, in fact, amen, I say to you. Up front, this is so authoritative and true and you can bank on it that I put the amen right up front and I don't wait for you to amen it, right? He just says Mark 13, verse 31, Jesus says things like this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's crazy. He's saying... All of the created order, all of the universe and the heavens and planets and galaxies and this planet that we're on and everything that contains, the heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. The truth of what I say, what I declare, what I promise will, will happen, what I command, what I warn, my words, he says, are more lasting and enduring than all of creation. This guy is saying this in people's synagogues, talking like this. Who talks like this? God does, right? Who's allowed to talk like this? God. And so they're astonished because this guy is talking in a way that that only God should have the right to talk like this. And he's speaking as one who has authority. So the manner with which he teaches astonishes the people, points to his authority. But back to Mark 1. But then he actually shows it. He demonstrates it in a powerful, visible act here, casting this demon out of a man who, who blurts out in the middle of the synagogue. The demon sort of blows his cover, right? Can't take what Jesus is saying, and he, and he freaks out and panics, and he, and he confronts Jesus in this scene. Jesus shows his divine authority quickly, completely over this powerful enemy, this, this demon. So let's look at that. Verse 23. There was in their synagogue... A man with an unclean spirit. So I don't think that the the scene is that in the middle of church, the door burst open and the guy ran in and interrupted everything, not having heard anything that happened before. I think the picture is there's a man sitting in church, listening to the scriptures, and Jesus is explaining it. And with an evil spirit, we're going to get to in a second, and this evil spirit recognizes who Jesus is and responds, right? This happens because of Jesus' teaching, I think. So there's this man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. And I want to take a detour right here and just clarify. The Bible teaches we believe there is a spiritual realm, that uh, there is more than just physical, material stuff that God created. First of all, God is spirit. So he created physical stuff, but God has created spiritual beings, angels, the Bible says. And and we have lots more questions about angels than God gives us, right? We have more questions than answers, but he tells us definitively he has created angelic beings, glorious, spiritual, not physical beings, created to do his will, to be his messengers and to serve him according to his will, right? Psalm 103, messengers of God, right? the Bible also tells us that we have a spiritual enemy, Satan. We read about him in Ephesians 2, Doug took us to. Would you put that up again, Molly? As Paul is describing all of our state, what does it mean to be born in sin? Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were just following the course of this world. But then he includes an actual enemy. He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit or angel that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Wait, stop right there. Go go back right. So first of all, to be clear, Paul is saying there is an actual enemy. There's a course of this world that we were all born walking in. But there's a spirit that is now actively at work in the sons of disobedience. That's us. And here's what he's he's doing. Next, Next slide. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So ever since Genesis 3, right, Adam and Eve were tempted, Satan comes tempting, wants to destroy and oppose God by destroying what God has made in his image and intends to glorify himself through. He's gonna attack God's creation people to try to get at God, and from the very beginning, that's what Satan does, tries to pull people successfully, tempts them away from God's course, and says, I want you to make your own course. Go ahead, make your own course. You have authority. You set yourself above God as authority, and you make your own course, and Paul is saying that every one of us has been born in sin, and we are following the course of this world that is actively sort of being led by Satan, in this world. He's actively working to keep God, or the people God has made, heading to destruction. and, and, And we're not innocent victims in this. Notice, go back to that slide, Molly, the last part of that. We're not just helpless victims, just sort of being, you know, let off mindlessly. No, the reason we're following the course of this world, Paul says, is on us. He says passions of our flesh and the desires of our body and mind, that's what we're carrying out so that he can say we're by nature children of wrath. Why are we so easily tempted? Because we are so temptable, right? There is something in us that desires the very thing that the Bible says Satan is at work to lead people in. We're easy targets, right? We're, at, we're not a tough sell to Satan, So we're not just victims here, but he is actively opposing God by attacking the people God's made. And we have enemies, plural. We have to remember this. Satan is not omnipresent. We can can forget or sort of think at times like, well, Satan's everywhere, just like God's everywhere, and he's not. That's really good news, right? Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere, but (laughs) Satan's Influences everywhere. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. Paul says, We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Our main problem, he says, we wrestle against rulers authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying there is, are very real spiritual beings who are actively at work to oppose God, to, to try to get back at God and, and, and fight God by destroying the thing God has made in his own image and is intending to redeem. Satan wants at that, to destroy that, and he's actively at work in the world to do that keeping us in course, keeping us in line. So let's go back to this scene in Mark 1. Suddenly there's this man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit who cries out. But the detour is helpful because I, I got to remember, everyone in the synagogue is under the influence of Satan and that course, right? Right? Not just this one man who has an evil spirit to whatever extent he's controlled by this evil spirit, as we see. They are all dead in sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. They all need rescue from authoritative king, right? So this man cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It's really one question, right? Are you here to destroy us? not just me, this one demon. This, man isn't ta- this man's mouth is talking, but Mark wants us to understand that this demon is spe- just blew his cover and is speaking to Jesus. And he says, the reason he asked the question is because he knows who he is. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This man's sitting in this synagogue and this demon is there. Influencing and controlling this man and this demon, the, the people hear Jesus teaching and they're astonished. This guy speaks like he has authority. This demon says, "This is the Holy One of God. I know who you are, and therefore, he." This demon connects. I know why you're here. Genesis three told us why the Holy One of God was going to come. Right? What was the Holy One of God going to come and do? Genesis three fifteen, crush the head of the serpent. Right. God says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head. One day he's going to come. He's going to bruise your head. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. And this demon blows its cover and says, I know who you are. Are you here to destroy us? It's like, is the head bruising happening right now? That's, it's like, that's, is, it, is it over? Is, it, is time up? Is what this demon is saying. And Jesus doesn't directly answer his question. He just rebukes the demon and and, and he says, be silent, come out of him. No incantations or rituals or exorcism ceremony or prayers or or pleading or chanting or anything. Jesus was just a sentence. It's like, just shut up, leave. He just just says, and the the demon complies, as we're going to see in a minute. But he just commands, but he doesn't answer the demon's question. Are you here to destroy us? He just casts him out. So, okay, what's the answer? Yes or no? Are you here to destroy us? You're looking at me like it's a trick question. <laughs> what is it? Yes. yes. I am here, right? The Son of God, First John 3 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what I'm here to do, right? Kick in the gates of hell, destroy all, my enemy, right? But is the answer completely yes here? Are you here to destroy us? Well, not right now, Right? He just casts him out and then keeps preaching from synagogue to synagogue and three years of ministry. And he doesn't destroy Satan and and our, our enemy right there. He casts him out and he continues about this ministry. Why? This is really key. This is why I wanted us to go to Ephesians 2 for a minute and then come back here. Because Ephesians 2 helps me understand that Satan is my second biggest enemy and yours. He's an accuser. And a tempter, and a liar, and a destroyer. And he's powerful, and he's active, and he is our enemy. And we ought to fear and not take him lightly. Be sober minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, Peter says, right? But he's our second biggest enemy. What's our first biggest enemy? Us, right? The reason Satan is such a powerful enemy to us, Ephesians 2 says, is because I am by nature a child of wrath. My desires of my heart, my passions from birth are such that I'm easily tempted, right? My biggest problem isn't that I have a tempter out there. My biggest problem is that I'm so stinking easily tempted, right? That I'm a pushover for Satan in the course of this world. So the reason Jesus has come is to crush the head of Satan, right? Our enemy, yes, but the way he's going to completely destroy Satan and his works is not just by getting him out of the scene, but crushing what gives Satan power over us, right? At the end of the day, we're not slaves to Satan, we're slaves to sin, the Bible says, right? Romans says what we're in bondage to is sin, and that's what makes us enslaved to some degree to Satan in the course of this world. So Jesus has come to kill our number one enemy and that's our sin. And he's, he's going to do it at the cross. And the crazy thing is, is at the cross, it's going to look like Satan's winning, right? Right? It's going to look least like Jesus has authority and power. He's going to look weak and like a liar and a fraud. And people are going to mock and say, oh, here's the king, right? Where are the angels? He's going to hang there in weakness and die. First Corinthians, Paul says, the gospel is foolishness to the world. It's a stumbling block. God on a cross in weakness and in shame And and Paul says that's the power of God. It's the power of God because God uses his second biggest enemy to kill our biggest enemy, right? Listen to the way N.T. Wright puts this. He says, "The, the demons will have their final shriek at Jesus as he hangs on the cross, and they will challenge and mock the validity of his authority one last time, he says, but the cross is where Jesus completes the work he began that day in the synagogue. That's great, right? So are you here to destroy us? Yes and no, right? Not immediately. I'm going to make you destroy yourselves because you're going to put Jesus on the cross and on the cross, he's going to destroy what gives you any power over my created people whom I love and I plan to redeem. And Jesus shows visibly that he has that kind of authority by casting this demon out with a sentence, right? This man is controlled physically by this powerful demon. And and Jesus, with a word, says, be, be gone. And, and what does he do? Immediate compliance with a little tantrum on his way out, right? <laughs> it says, you know, he uh, convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice. But he came out of him, right? So a little tantrum, but immediate compliance. It's like parenting, right? Well, except for the immediate compliance part. It's, it's, it's a little tantrum. And then anyway, but so that, that break that breaks down. Um, <laughs> cries out with a convulsion, but he's gone, right? You don't even hear about the man and, and the demon anymore. It just moves right past. Verse 27, we see two results. Two, two, thing, two ways that people are impacted. Number one, uh, verse 27 they're all amazed so that they question among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him so they've clearly been amazed by two things they're amazed at the way the manner with which Jesus teaches he teaches as one who has authority <clears throat> but as he's proclaiming a kingdom that he's bringing he demonstrates his authority by commanding evil spirits and they obey him they obey him his word so they were amazed. One of the things I want us to see this morning is, because at first I thought, okay, so, so how do we need to respond here? Oh, we need to be like these people. We need to see Jesus' authority in his teaching and see his authority over this demon. And we ought to be amazed, right? So that the application here is, guys, let's be amazed at the authority of Jesus, right? Right, that's, that's a good step. But, do you know what happened with people in Capernaum and with most of the, the majority of people throughout Galilee who were amazed? Listen to this from Matthew 11. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. He spent years teaching in synagogues and casting out demons from village to village to village. And near the end of his ministry, Matthew 11 says that Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. You, Capernaum, they get called out by name. This first city that Mark tells us about Jesus showing his authority. And he says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Why? If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That, should have got, that would have gotten a gasp when Jesus said that. Sodom, that is the shorthand for wicked city, right? The city in Genesis that was so wicked that God said, I don't need any more time and wiped out the whole city. Judge this city, right? And Jesus is saying, the things that you've seen, Capernaum, and heard from me, if those had happened in Sodom, they would have lined up in repentance. And you haven't. That, that is sobering. Is that sobering to you? That makes me stop and go, okay. Amazement isn't enough. Being fascinated by Jesus or intrigued with Jesus or seeing Jesus being interesting, right? I mean, there are PhDs in theology and, and, can, and can explain the historical theology of the doctrine of Christ and, and what the Bible says about him and the things that Jesus says and have all this knowledge and even amazement and wonder at who is this guy? And stop short of worship, right? Turning from course to Jesus' course and repenting and trusting in him as Savior and Lord. Capernaum didn't do it, by and large. He, he, said, he denounces them, not for lack of evidence. They saw his authority. They were even amazed. And so I want that to be a warning for us and a question, are we amazed at Jesus' authority in such a way that it doesn't move through to the heart where I I actually, it it caused me to repent of my sin and recognize my need, recognize my resistance of his authority and my rebellion against his authority and my need to submit myself to his authority and receive the forgiveness that I have because Jesus met the demands that I failed to to meet. If amazement doesn't get us there, then amazement's not worth anything, Jesus is saying more tolerable for Sodom on that day than someone who's encountered the glorious uh, authority of Jesus displayed for them and in the heart rejects it. That's sobering. Mark wants us to be amazed with Jesus and it turned into worship and submission and receiving of him couldn't help last week when, as I was finishing preparing this, thinking about this big arrival, the long-awaited arrival of a, a Messiah and King for generations. They're waiting and waiting, and now he's saying it's arrived. And it was right, as I was studying for this, it was right along the time that the iPhone 6 finally arrived. You know, it's crazy, you know, from year to year, okay, right up front, I have an Apple iPhone, so this isn't a bash on, you can have an iPhone and love Jesus, right, this isn't, so don't misunderstand the illustration, but I was just thinking about sort of the phenomenon with Apple and Apple products it's become, right, so like, since the last keynote where they unveiled the last thing in a year and a half or two years ago, as soon as that day, millions are waiting, right, with bated breath of what's the next thing gonna be. And so for a whole year, people are waiting for like the next iPhone, right? And then they have this key, you know, keynote event and U2's there. Bono's like the John the Baptist announcing the arrival of the next thing. And, and it's unveiled and a smartwatch and two sizes of iPhone. And it's all over the web and the pictures and everyone's blogging about it. And the pre-orders go on. And the first weekend, four million people or in the first weekend that they were available online. And then the next week stores begin to have them in limited quantities and 10 million are sold the first weekend around the world. I'm sure it would have been more, they just all ran out, right? That's how much they had to sell. And it was amazing. I was looking at pictures online like this in London at this huge Apple store in downtown London. And the picture, I had to crop it. It's just a sea mob going all the way back and around for blocks. They all camped out overnight for the arrival of this iPhone. And here it is. The doors are open. The first few people have theirs. And there's a receiving line of Apple geniuses high-fiving them on the way out. It's a celebration, right? I mean, they're cheering. And this dude is the first guy. He got two, right? Maybe one of each size or Something. But man, when I saw this picture, the first thing I thought of was in the beginning of Acts when Peter and John heal this man who's never walked all his life, and it says he's leaping in the courts and <laughs> praising. Right? Like I had this image of that guy, and this guy—it's just phones, right? Yeah, okay, I got to admit, like we can we can get crazy nuts about something like an iPhone and receive it with joy and submit. Here's my money; just give it to me. The bigger the screen, the better, right? You know, and. Okay, that's fine, but our amazement at Jesus and our worship and our joy in Jesus ought to be way bigger than this, right? Where's my note? If Jesus has this kind of authority that we've seen, that He is God, He speaks as God, and He's come with an authority and a good desire to exercise it on our behalf, to kill our sin, to destroy our enemies, to bring us back to God, to cover us with his blood, to give us his spirit, new life, and then to lead us in righteousness and restore his image in us. If that's why Jesus has come with his authority, if that's what Jesus' authority is for, why wouldn't we want to submit to it gladly, right? When we get it, not just get that he has it, but get why he has it and how he's using it. We should respond to it with worship and joy, right? Way bigger than that. But it doesn't even end here. Last thing I want to say. So the, the response here is they're amazed and they begin saying, "Who is this guy?" And but verse twenty-eight says, "And at once his fame spread everywhere through all throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee." Just you know, one last thought. I thought about that and thought, you know, spreading his fame. And so in the verse thirty-nine it says, Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue, casting out demons and preaching. And they've all already heard of him when they get here because of verse twenty-eight. At once people started to talk, and his fame spread faster than he could get there, right? And what struck me is, okay, they still don't quite get who he is, right? I mean, his fame is spreading by people who still are going, I'm not sure who this guy is. Is it Elijah? Is it Moses? Is it an angel? Is, you know, who is this guy? Nevertheless, already his authority is, is causing his name to be spread by people who don't quite entirely get it yet. And I just thought, how much more we have a desire to spread his fame, right? Like we know, we know his authority. We know what he's done to use it. We know who he is for us now. He knows, we know what he wants to do. He, we know the offer of the gospel. We know God's willingness to receive people who humble themselves and, and repent and believe. We know this way more than these people. I, I pray our amazement would move to first personal worship, repentance, faith, trust, receiving of Jesus, but that that would spill over into fame spreading, right? That we, w- we couldn't help but talk. That's what the apostles said, right? And acts are on trial, being threatened, stop talking about Jesus, and they just, they can't help it. They're not saying, well, I, you know, you said that, but Jesus told me I'm supposed to keep talking about him. No, he says, we can't help but talk about this Jesus that we've seen, Right? Their amazement and wonder and worship led to a desire to spread his fame that ought to exceed the the, the spreading of fame that's going on here. We want to spread like that, him. That every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to him, all majesty, ascribe and crown him Lord of all. We want to be part of seeing Jesus' authority received as its due, right? So, we're going to take a couple minutes to be quiet. Pray. Talk to the Lord about what what he's telling us through, through this, what he's showing us in Jesus. I want to give you four maybe possible questions or things to just stop and pray about. Number one, you might stop and just pray a little bit about this idea of authority. Um, what ways do you resist God's authority or resist Jesus' authority? In what ways are you growing to love Jesus' authority? Maybe you want to pray and think about this this idea that Satan is at work. There's a course of this world that Satan is trying to get us to keep following. And here's two great questions to think. On one hand, where in your life do you feel the course of this world pull most strongly, even still? And talk to the Lord about that. Confess that to him. Ask for help. Say, God, I still feel the pull so strongly here. Today I feel it. And talk to him about that. Or... I think it's good to stop and, and consider how is the pull of the course of this world weakening? And thank him for that. That's worth stopping and thanking him for. It's not over, but to acknowledge, you know, God, thank you. I, I feel that pull weakening because you have broken the, the bondage of sin over me. And I see it and I thank you for it. Maybe you need to stop and, and, and pray a little bit about uh, repentance and trust growing amazement, not just when you first come to Christ, but throughout the Christian life, we can slip back into just sort of being amazed and interested by Jesus and, and, and lose a heart of repentance and lose a heart of faith and trust, right? And rest in Jesus. And so maybe you want to talk to the Lord about that and say, God, how, how is a heart of repentance growing or not growing in my heart? If it's not, ask him for help. And last, I just, maybe you need to just stop and pray a little. about you. There is worship in your heart. There is receiving of Jesus and submission and joy. Like the guy with the iPhone, there's joy in Jesus. But it's not spreading anywhere. It's just still bottled up here. And, and, and just stop and pray and say, Lord, would you stir a joy that I can't help but speak of? And even pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see and... and uh, uh, and, and, and the follow-through to act on to be ambassadors, people who spread Jesus' fame because you've received it. So take a couple more, whatever else that the Lord is, is talking to you about uh, through the word this morning. So a couple minutes you have to, to pray, and then Doug's going to lead us with a closing hymn.